On the 4th of September 1940, in a long address at the Sports Palace, Hitler shifted the Luftwaffe's focus away from important military targets to focus instead on London and other major English cities in retaliation for the Royal Air Force's night bombing raids on Germany. This shift in strategy would prove to be the unraveling of Hitler's campaign to invade Britain, giving the RAF precious time to recover from the relentless bombing raids on airfields and manufacturing plants. While London took the full force of Hitler's fury, the RAF were able to regroup, rebuild, and remount a last-ditch effort to drive the Luftwaffe from British skies. But what if this pivotal battle had gone a different way? What if Hitler had stayed the course and continued to bomb already exhausted military targets, gaining dominance of the skies above the last resistant force in Europe? What would the repercussions have been for the world if the RAF had lost the Battle of Britain? What if Nazi Germany won the Battle of Britain? What if Babe Ruth wasn't traded to the Yankees? What if the 300 were routed at Thermopylae? What if China had discovered the new world? The world that wasn't. An alternate history podcast. Okay, welcome to our first podcast of The World That Wasn't, where each month we'll be exploring the what-ifs of history. My name's Nick Davidge. My name is Jamie Toll. In this show, we're going to try and go beyond the events as they happened and instead dig into what could have been had things taken a slightly different turn. Now, this is our first show, so we're still in the process of working out the format. So bear with us as we make tweaks and changes along the way. Um, one of the challenges of alternate or counterfactual history is that it's largely based on educated speculation. And that's typically frowned upon by professional historians because it lacks the certainties of hard dates and times. Lucky for us, however, we are not historians. We're more like history fans or history geeks or history whatever you want to call us. The point is, we're unafraid of the dangers of this uncharted hypothetical terrain. <laughs> Yeah, if you are looking for exact times and dates, we are not your guys. This is about understanding the human decisions and quandaries from these very pivotal moments in time uh, with us. But to keep us on the straight and narrow, and we definitely need to be kept on the straight and narrow, each episode will have a guest historian, someone to give us a more educated perspective and answer our more wanton historic meanderings with a more professional point of view. I think that's, uh, for me anyway, one of the great things about uh, alternate history, James, is that it puts you in the shoes of these historic figures in some of their most decisive moments. This is living history. Bombs are still dropping, tall ships are stocked and ready to set sail. Great men and women are still wrestling with the issues that will define their lives. Um, but more than anything, 
this is really a chance for us to explore some of the areas we love. Yeah, and it, it's valuable in that it allows us to stay connected to the past. Uh, in this show, every option is still viable. It's still alive. There are no certainties. It's like you've been you've time traveled into the past and your decisions still hold meaning because, you know, you can influence the events that are taking place around you. It kind of allows us to explore the what ifs in an environment that carries with it the consequences of every wrong turn. We try wherever possible to pivot around real decision points, um, moments where it all came down to a yes or a no, a go or a not go, and really use those moments as a fulcrum around which our histories unfold in a number of potential outcomes. This is where we, we wander around for a while. Because if history has taught us one thing, it's that nothing is a foregone conclusion. There are, however, some challenges with this stuff. Uh, we would be remiss if we didn't warn you about it now. In each episode, we'll be identifying a divergence point. But with counterfactual history, one change inevitably leads to another, and you can very quickly find yourself in speculative waters. It's like a, a skyscraper built on shaky foundations. Every time you build a new floor, it gets more and more precarious until you find yourself on the roof waiting for the wind to blow. So we'll do our best to keep things on track and not let ourselves get too carried away. But, you know. We'll see what happens. Yeah. So for this episode, our maiden voyage, we decided to take a look at a much-sided turning point in World War II, the Battle of Britain. The ultimate outcome of this battle would deter Hitler uh, from a land-borne invasion of the British Isles. And instead, um, as we know, uh, it sent him east to Russia. Okay, just to set the scene for those of you not familiar with the Battle of Britain, the year is 1940. Cue the dramatic music. Using blitzkrieg tactics, German forces have swept through the relatively undefended Ardennes region of northern France to take the French and British by surprise and capture most of northern France and the lowlands of Holland and Belgium. Effectively, the battle for France is over. And now Hitler sets his sights on Great Britain, his only remaining adversary. But instead of immediately pursuing the retreating British expeditionary force back to England and committing his land forces to a tricky channel crossing, he decides to wait. He regroups and turns the next phase of the attack over to the Luftwaffe. The Nazis have had great success in the early part of the war using their air force to soften up enemy resistance before committing land forces to a full-on invasion. And uh, Commander-in-Chief of the Luftwaffe, Hermann Goering, claimed that he would have Britain on its knees in a matter of weeks. And with that, it's time to introduce our guest historian. We are lucky enough to have Sonia Ostro on the show, who is a PhD candidate at Vanderbilt University and who specializes in World War II history. Sonia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We're so happy to have an actual historian on the show <laughs> to set us straight on some <laughs> of our crazy nonsense. No, I'm, I mean, I'm impressed. I, uh, I'm a little bit nervous. That's okay, Sonia. We have no idea what we're doing here. This is our first podcast. We're not actually quite sure what you're going to make of our, our random theories. It is easier when you're dealing with alternate realities. So that's actually a really interesting way, I guess, to kick off. Um, the idea of alternate history or, or counterfactual history is, is frowned upon by more serious historians. Right. Is this just a completely ridiculous idea? Um, I guess, no, I don't think it's completely ridiculous. Um... I, uh, historians do use counterfactual um, presentations occasionally. I think the key thing is that um, 
you have to isolate all your different variables and that's very difficult. So uh, the first question I think to ask is why something happened the way it did. And counterfactual history is actually a really good way of getting at that question because otherwise it's too easy to assume that things inevitably were going to happen the way they the way they did. It was inevitable that uh, the Allies would defeat Germany, for example. So I actually think it's really cool what you guys are doing because it sort of puts that in question and shows how contingent history actually is. Um, at the same time, there are certain assumptions that we have to, I think, keep to in order for this exercise to be at all useful. So, you know, I wouldn't be comfortable with counterfactual history um, of World War II that said, well, what if Hitler wasn't anti-Semitic? for example. Well, that's so foundational to Nazism and to Hitler's project that it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't get you anywhere. Right. There are, there are limits to the liberties you can take with these characters. You know, if you take away Hitler's fanaticism, he probably wouldn't have invaded Poland in the first place. You know, we, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you start to think about the larger-than-life characters in this war, it makes it very easy to subscribe to, you know, that great man theory of history, the idea that uh, history is defined and shaped by key characters, Alexander the Great or Mohammed, Napoleon, and in this case, Hitler. That's the amazing thing, because this particular war is filled with these very galvanizing, strong-willed figures. And with Hitler, you got a doozy of a psycholo <laughs> psychological study, you know, because as you know, Nick and I have discussed, he made a lot of decisions based on a pure emotional impulse mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, prejudices he had that were completely irrational. Well, I, and I think World War II is actually beautifully full of those characters, whether yeah. it's Churchill, Stalin. I mean, these, these guys, yeah, I mean, these guys are driven. I, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, when looking at um, all these figures, Hitler, Stalin, Churchill, Roosevelt, um, they weren't making completely rational decisions all the time. Um, I do think it's important, and um, the Battle of Britain is an interesting example of, um, we do have to look not just at what Hitler decided, um, what he did, but the interactions between him and his generals, um, and that back and forth as well. So I, I think it's important, I, I, I think you're right that those personalities and kind of personal or emotional motivations are really decisive, um, but they didn't exist, these figures didn't exist in a vacuum. So it's important to keep that context in mind as well. I, I, we often do that, right? It's like, well, Hitler made all these decisions, you right. know. But the, like you say, the interaction between him and Goering is is interesting in itself. Yeah, the 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 main thing I would add to that is that um, that that kind of image of this capricious Hitler shifting his strategy in response to the bombing of uh, German cities is true, um, but it's not the only explanation. I think one of the deeper issues uh, that has come up in more recent research is that uh, the Luftwaffe had a very um, uh, a very limited intelligence picture of what the RAF's capabilities actually were, and so they consistently underestimated um, the the RAF forces and its ability to repair and, and get um, pilots and aircraft back on the ground or back in the air. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, for whatever reason, I think this is kind of an, uh, one of the unsolved mysteries of the Battle of Britain, Goering really underestimated the value of uh, those home station, the, the radar stations, essentially, in the, uh, in the British defense. So the, the shift to, to focusing on civilian or sort of less strategic military targets um, was a huge blunder, but it wasn't 
just this kind of snap judgment. It was it was the product of sort of um, the assumption that the RAF was worse off than it actually was, and that it made sense for the Luftwaffe to switch to kind of a, a strategy focusing on diminishing British morale. And I think also that lack of intelligence on the part of the Luftwaffe was exacerbated, you know, by the disinformation that was getting back to Hitler, and in some cases from Goering himself. Right. There's a, you know, there's a lot of characters in this scenario, um, both political and military, and Hitler was not necessarily getting the greatest information you could possibly get. There was a lot of pandering going on. There was a lot of politics and what to tell Hitler and what not to tell Hitler. Exactly. No one wanted to be the bearer of bad news to the Fuhrer. I mean, it's very easy, I think, to look back at the Battle of Britain as this romantic, almost Arthurian battle where the few knights of the RAF face off against the overwhelming forces of the Luftwaffe. Um, but I think in recent years, historians have taken a more in-depth look at some of the factors involved. Yeah. And I think drawn a more nuanced conclusion to what happened. A great book is The Most Dangerous Enemy, A History of the Battle of Britain by Stephen Bungay, which really goes into depth about all these different factors. Yeah. You know. um, I would say the, the uh, one advantage that, I'm, and this is probably obvious, but the, the one advantage that um, the RAF had in terms of its pilot pool was that, you know, if, if British fighter pilots crashed and landed in England, they were likely to be, you know, saved by a farmer and taken to a hospital and and eventually rehabilitated. Whereas if a German was shot down um, over an English air, uh, an English farm or something, th that person had no chance and would never go back into um, the Luftwaffe. Radar, the organization of fighter command, right. manufacturing efforts and repair. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Sonia, these all played a significant role uh, in defeating the Luftwaffe. Yeah not least of which was Goering's inability to grasp the tactics of modern air right. warfare. But that's no fun. <laughs> um, so, so let's say um, Hitler and Goering sitting down, they're, they're actually thinking through this, even though they are somewhat irrational. And maybe it's, maybe it's their clerk that comes in and says, actually, guys, we, we do need to keep doing this. We've <laughs> mathematically done the, the, we've run the stats. And if we keep doing this for a certain period of time, we will uh, have the ability to diminish the RAF, at least to the point where we can possibly take the next step. So let's say he had a strategy. Is that, is that what you're saying? Right. <laughs> this is where we get into the fun stuff. What happens if they stay the course? So our divergent point is that they decide, okay, even though we want to get revenge because they bombed us, Mm -hmm. Let's continue with the path that we're on. Mm -hmm. And let's and these radars seem to be something that's maybe a little bit more important than we first considered. We should probably take those out as well because they kind of know where we're coming from and they make mm -hmm. that decision. There's our divergent point. So what happens next? Yeah, I mean this this is where things get interesting and we start getting into the alternate history stuff. You know, because the Battle of Britain is over. Um, the Luftwaffe have control of the skies over England, and Hitler's main objective, remember, is to get Britain out of the war. It's not necessarily to invade. Uh, I think his next big decision, though, is how to do it. I mean, um, the first scenario that we've put together is pretty much a straightforward interpretation of his plan, um, codenamed Operation Sea Lion, which called for an, an all-out invasion of England. And here's the way it could have gone down.
made it. Nazis take over UK. Churchill is forced into exile in Canada, vowed to liberate British Isles and her colonies. Merely weeks after neutralizing the Royal Air Force over the skies of England, German air, navy, and ground troops have seized control of the British Isles, completing the Nazi conquest of Western Europe. President Roosevelt demands the immediate withdrawal of Nazi troops from the UK, while Soviet Union Premier Joseph Stalin remains silent. Having destroyed the RAF, the German Luftwaffe successfully turned their attention to a bombing campaign of the Royal Navy, clearing the way for a German amphibious invasion. While Nazi troops met fierce street-to-street fighting from British Home Guard, the defending forces were swept away in under a week from out-trained and better-experienced German forces. Hitler is expected to visit Britain's capital, London, to celebrate his complete control of Western Europe. Meanwhile, Winston Churchill, speaking from Toronto, Canada, vowed to liberate the island nation with forces from its still vast colonies, including Canada and India. Back in Britain, guerrilla-style fighting continues to pester victorious German forces in England and Wales. President Roosevelt is said to be meeting with the Prime Minister, along with William Lyon Mackenzie King, on Tuesday, despite calls from isolationists to reach out to the German Chancellor for a non-aggression treaty. Operation Sea Lion would have been interesting for Germany because it required um, the different branches of the Wehrmacht to work together in a way that they really hadn't effectively before um, in terms of the Navy, the Luftwaffe, and the the ground forces coordinating. Um, And they had never had to launch kind of this type of uh, seaborne attack. Um, And they had tried out some strategies to some extent in Norway and, and... I mean, eventually they had defeated the Norwegians, but it had not had been it had not been as successful as they had hoped. They had suffered uh, a, quite large losses. Um, so, I think a key a key problem um, was that the different commanders of these different uh, subsets of the Wehrmacht were never really on board. Were never able to fully coordinate and figure out a way that they could all work together. Um, to deliver troops effectively uh, into the United Kingdom. Right, they collected all these river barges, fishing vessels and pleasure boats from around the continent, but none of them were really suitable to deliver the kind of heavy artillery and troops that were needed um, to attempt an amphibious invasion of England. The barges did have flat hulls, which meant they could land on the beaches, but they didn't really have a way to disembark the equipment or vehicles. I think they tried cutting the noses off to add a ramp, but it really wasn't a very effective solution. Not to mention the fact that in some cases the barges didn't even have an engine um, and they tried tugboats and things like that. Right. I mean, these boats were used to travelling in low country canals and rivers. Right. I mean, they hadn't invented mulberries or other sort of high tech ways to deliver troops um, to England. So they would still have to do that at some point. And, and then face, you know, the unpredictable waters of the English Channel. It was so close. I mean, they could see the White Cliffs of Dover from Calais. They just had to get across it. But first, of course, they had to get past... The entire British Navy. Right. Or what was not in the Mediterranean, which wasn't that much. You know, this is something I go back and forth on, because this is the first war, really, where air power plays a decisive role in the outcome of a battle. Um, and if the if the Luftwaffe have control of the skies over the channel, then theoretically they control it, right? I mean, without air support, how much of a chance do the Royal Navy stand? Um, surely they could just bomb the entire fleet out of the water. 
but a, a lot of historians do point to um, the Luftwaffe's comportment in uh, the invasion of Norway to, to, to show that, well, they were not very successful actually at destroying um, Norwegian ships. And therefore, it's unlikely that they would have been very effective against um, the British Navy. And part of that, um, from what I understand, had to do with the types of shells that the Luftwaffe had at this point. They weren't um, necessarily powerful enough to pierce the armor of um, these these large warships. Um, but there are a few decisive examples of air power being extremely successful against uh, naval power in this war. You only have to look um, in the Pacific theater. It, it's not that these armor-piercing shells didn't exist at this time, because actually the Japanese would use them at Singapore. Um, so they had them. Right. The Prince of Wales and the Repulse, two British warships, both sunk by Japanese torpedo bombers on their way to defend Singapore in 1941. The British naval force had no air support and were basically um, sitting ducks. The crazy thing is that the Prince of Wales was only launched a few years earlier and was a state-of-the-art battleship in arguably the most powerful navy in the world at the time. And they were both sunk without uh, much effort by uh, Japanese aerial torpedoes that have been around since 1936. So I think that also speaks to the lack of communication and coordination between the different Axis forces. And I think that's one of the huge what-ifs. If the Japanese, Germans and Italians had coordinated much better than they did, perhaps that would have made the difference. If, if uh, the Japanese had said, oh, Hitler, we have this in these incredible shells, who knows? The question is, Ultimately, like, could they have done it without an amphibious assault? I'm not convinced that this, the airborne strategy alone would suffice. Um, remember, there are there are many millions of volunteers in the Home Guard. Um, this is a very, fairly well organized um, society, ready for such an attack. I mean, citizens were on alert for for months. Um, and expecting this, perhaps coming from Ireland, there are all sorts of theories that and, and um, strategies that they were kind of preparing but for. But even though they were preparing strategies for these different eventualities, I still think that England was woefully unprepared for uh, an invasion of more seasoned troops. And they were preparing to defend an exposed coastline twice the length of what the French tried to hold in May, but with a quarter of the men. Um, admittedly, they held the advantage if they were in the right place to repel the Germans as they came ashore. But I'm, I'm almost sure with superiority of the air, Hitler's first goal um, would have been paratroopers, as they did in Crete and Narvik, um, that would have probably dropped in, secured a vital port um, so the transports could get in some of the heavy artillery and panzer divisions. I mean, preparing strategies is one thing, but actually organising the troops and having that strategy uh, play out the way you want it is another, right? Um Ironside, who was the commander of British forces midway through 1940, uh, reported to his superiors that he had insufficient men to stop the Germans from landing and instead proposed uh, building pillboxes inland to slow up German tanks. Um, and that, of course, isn't what his superiors wanted to hear and he was replaced shortly after. But either way, it, it talks to the fears that people had at the time, uh, people who had a pretty thorough knowledge of, of England's defences, I think. Yeah, the English had a bunch of very complicated plans throughout World War II that didn't really pan out like they had hoped. You know, Operation Market Garden or some of the engagements in North Africa and Singapore. And once you have Germans putting pressure along the southeast coast, you know, who knows what might have happened? 
there was obviously a lot of fear. Uh, American ambassador Joseph Kennedy wrote, you know, that he thought Hitler would be in London by the middle of August. I mean, this war really, um, I think, was is a great example of uh, of brinksmanship in, in a lot of ways um, from the Germans. So I think Germany still and 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 Britain would know that Germany still faced serious obstacles to an invasion of England. Um, they would have to face the Home Guard, you know, defending its own soil. Um, they would. There were plans in place for the British to use um, poison, ga- poison gas against uh, German troops. Um, so I think it would still have been a very hard-fought, attempted invasion. And, and, and I know there are some theories that say that even with air superiority, that you know, sea line wasn't a foregone conclusion. There, are, you know, reports that Hitler had already called off the operations, uh, you know, as early as like I think July, um, regardless of the Luftwaffe's victory. And he was more interested in focusing his attention on the Soviet Union. But you know, come on, if if you have control of the skies, you're not just going to sit there and do nothing, right? If the Luftwaffe had defeated the RAF, then Germany would have would have probably gone ahead. I mean, that was the the con- one of the main conditions for Operation Sea Lion to proceed. Um, I think they probably would have attempted it at that point if England had not sued for peace. Because now England is in a completely different situation. No air force to defend troops on the ground. Um, much like in Poland, British ground forces would now face unfettered attacks from the skies. Maybe this is a good time to think about uh, agreeing terms. Um, But is that enough to bring them to the table? But let's hold that thought just for a second. We'll get there. I do think, I don't know where you guys are going with this. Maybe you want to get to this later. But I do think that the combination of um, the Luftwaffe, you know, say if it had stuck to this strategy, and then really putting a lot of effort into the U-boat kind of, managing that Atlantic corridor and keeping supplies from getting to England would have would have perhaps been a, a much more successful strategy. Right. That combination of um, kind of laying waste to Britain's air defenses and really strangling out English resources, that would have been uh, Germany's best chance to facilitate a successful invasion of England. Well, that's something we haven't discussed. Um, the wolf packs in the North Atlantic and how they might have affected things. But how much impact would they have really had? The U-boat arm was definitely the strongest arm of the German Navy. Um, and I think the Battle, Battle of the Atlantic in some ways proved to be the the, the uh, most... Uh, Churchill remarked that it, the Battle of the Atlantic was what really scared him during the war. Um, this possibility that the, the U-boats were just sinking many million tons of uh, British shipping. And I think in the long term... And and I think Hitler sort of thought about this um, before calling for Operation Sea Lion in July 1940, um, that they could kind of economically defeat Britain over the long term by just that, by um, preventing its kind of cutting off its lifeline across the Atlantic, preventing trade, that kind of thing. Um, so I think if they had committed to that long term and poured more resource, resources early on into the U-boats, that would have been... Uh, more effective in the long term. It's weird though because there there are a lot of similarities between World War One and World War Two with regards to the Atlantic Corridor, and it's like Groundhog Day. Yeah. Do you, do you think at least Churchill would have been like, wait a second, convoys worked in World War One, maybe they could work here too. Yeah. 
but there were some successes, right? They hadn't got their hands on the Enigma machine yet, um, which is the whole, you know, U110 story uh, that would happen um, a year later in 1941. And, you know, the Hollywood film, the U571 or whatever it right. was, and completely different call name for some reason. But um, but Bletchley Park had actually cracked yeah. some of the German codes, um, yeah. which helped with the Battle of Britain and the U-boats. Um, why couldn't they just use that uh, right. to knock them out? right. Yeah. Um, so the Battle of the Atlantic was kind of a constant back and forth. Basically, the Allies and the, the U.S. and Britain essentially um, would decipher a code or come up with a new, you know, convoy strategy or something, and then the U-boats would innovate. The German Navy would innovate and come up with a, a strategy to counter that or change their code. So it was sort of a constant back and forth in terms of who had the upper hand. Um, but I think I think you're right. There are points early on when um, the British. Had, had figured out a way to fend off the U-boat attacks, but then um, the Navy quickly came up with alter alternative ways to uh, to sink more British shipping. But it's impressive that both sides were able to constantly constantly innovate and, and think on their feet or in the water, as it were. Um, but, yeah. I suppose it's very easy for us to sit here, um, you know, in the future and look back on these events with the knowledge and security of hindsight. But there, there are so many unknowns for both sides. Um, nature alone, you know, plays a significant role here. And we often uh, leave that out of the picture. It's easy, I guess, you know, or, or reassuring to think that these decisions or outcomes were purely in man's hands, that if the allies or the Axis had made certain decisions, um, then it would have automatically made the difference. But the vastness of the Atlantic um, or the weather in the channel, for example, mm -hmm. um, is its own force. I mean, another example is Narvik. You know, the British forces show up and they don't have snow gear. Right. But then the same wouldn't happen in reverse in Russia for the Germans. Right. Um, you know, it's the vastness of, of nature and the impact that nature has on these battles. Right. Know? And even in the English Channel, of course, weather was a huge concern and um, played a factor many times. In, in or at least worried um, operations frequently. Yeah, the English Channel has saved uh, saved our uh, bacon yeah. a few times, yes. I believe. Uh, <laughs> the other thing I would throw back to you guys is this may be taking us totally off track, but if you're going for counterfactuals, I mean, what if what if um, Hitler hadn't issued the halt order heading to Dunkirk and England hadn't been able to evacuate? all of those all of those men i think we would have, be having a completely different conversation <laughs> yeah we talked about this as a possible okay point okay we had to pick our battles no pun intended and anyway but we ended up going with the battle of britain because you know it was sexier but this is another place that historians point to as a big turning point in the war you know you got the british expeditionary force you know over three hundred thousand men trapped in dunkirk backs against the channel uh, Germans do a clever pincer movement um, after the surge of the Ardennes and their blitzkrieg. You know, all is lost, and then something surprising happens. Hitler calls a halt and gives British and French forces a chance to escape in the miracle of Dunkirk, which is basically the mobilization of the whole entire fleet of privately held boats of all shapes and sizes and all to, you know, head out there and rescue the troops trapped on the beach. So my question, Sonny, is why did Hitler do that? He could have just finished him off. That could have been the end of it. I think it would prove to be a big mistake by Hitler. So there's the halt order, and then basically um, Germany is stewing about what what to do about 
Britain. And some people argue that if they had gone ahead and, and tried to push forward with an invasion or, or the bombing of the RAF immediately, that could have made a difference and greatly weakened um, the United Kingdom and made an invasion a possibility or or encouraged uh, Britain to come to, to seek peace terms um, instead of fighting on. Perfect timing. Okay, so that brings us to our next dose of what if. over as Prime Minister. After chasing down expeditionary forces fleeing Dunkirk and following successful Luftwaffe and submarine Wolfpack attacks upon the Royal Navy and Air Force, a new pacifist British government headed by E.F.L. Wood, the first Earl of Halifax, has accepted negotiated peace terms with Germany. While former Prime Minister Churchill and many military leaders pleaded with the government to continue to resist Nazi forces, the compromising of British defenses against a seemingly unbeatable German juggernaut cracked political unity in Parliament, clearing the way for a deal with Germany to save the country from what many believed would eventually end in a Nazi occupation of the UK. Included in the armistice is the surrender of some, but not all, yet unnamed colonies in Africa and the Middle East, as well as the promise to never invade the west coast of German-occupied Europe. Speaking on behalf of the United States, Ambassador Joe Kennedy stated, The United States supports the end of bloodshed in Western Europe and looks forward to working with the new government in the UK. We also plan on continuing to work with Chancellor Hitler to ensure the safety of all Europeans. So, Sonia, what do you think? The the threat of invasion and the sinking of a couple of their big battleships, now the British are feeling vulnerable. Is it time for a change in leadership? Someone a little more sympathetic to a peaceful solution? That's an inter- interesting question. Um, I, I don't think it has an easy answer. On the one hand, I don't think that people who are usually trotted out, um, like Halifax, uh, uh, George, um, who were in favour of suing for peace, had as much support... Um, as, as is sometimes said, uh, there was a lot of support behind Churchill's plan to continue fighting, including Chamberlain's Conservative Party. Um, on the other hand, uh, some recent research has shown that the response to Churchill's speeches, for example, wasn't as overwhelmingly positive as we might think. I, I mean, the people who were being bombed were not that impressed by uh, sort of like high-flying um, rhetoric about how, how Britain would hold on. Um, so I, I, there's a chance. Um, on the other hand, the English people were very aware of what Germany was doing in uh, the various countries that it had occupied. And uh, Britons knew that, um, you know, they, they perhaps would not be treated as badly as the Poles, but they would not be they would not be seen as equals to Germany either um, and that they would be treated as an occupied nation. If they yeah. sued for peace, would they still be been occupied though? Um, I, I they at least wouldn't be they their I mean their navy would have been taken away. I would imagine all of their colonial um, holdings would have been taken away. Uh, so I don't. It would be a very different a Great Britain. Right. I, I guess the longer you leave it, the less bargaining power you have. 
it's like you know you have this stack of chips and every every time you lose another big engagement or the enemy makes progress you lose another chip um until basically you have nothing left to bargain with yeah i mean you go back to dunkirk again for a moment if you lose the troops at that point then a whole bunch of your chips get tossed away yeah and, and i think it's some in some ways hitler was looking to raise the stakes there i mean it's almost like the mm-hmm. reason he didn't destroy them initially was because he wanted maybe to use them uh, and their plight to bring the British to the table. You know, I've got your guys trapped, come to the table or I'll, or I'll destroy them kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, does that take England out of the fighting? Um, I think that's a really tough question. I mean, obviously it would have put uh, Britain in a terrible position. It would have been harder, much harder to justify to the public um, uh, the the Churchill's plan to fight on. Um but the Conservative Party was pretty much behind Churchill, from what I know. Um, and he was able to garner enough support for the strategy of fighting on. And I think yeah. I think people were very nervous about Germany. They knew that Germany was not, or Hitler was not sticking to his, his promises, and that regardless of how generous the peace terms might be, they couldn't count on Hitler to stick by them. They'd already had a dose of Hitler double-crossing them before the war even started, you know, when he'd signed the treaty with Chamberlain. This guy could not be trusted. Once you give up um, and you let them into Britain, then suddenly Hitler could change the deal. And I think Churchill knew this, which is exactly why I don't think he'd ever um, give up. And, and I think the English people knew this. Um, and it's why they kicked Chamberlain out in the first place. But it kind of also brings up, again, uh, the psychology we were talking about earlier. I mean, did Hitler want to see Great Britain on its knees, or did he just want them out? Um, initially, I think I think he just wanted them out. Um, historians have talked about how he was Anglophilic to some extent. He had sort of a, a fantasy that Germany would have this continental empire and then it could coexist potentially with a British naval empire. In practice, I don't think that that was a real possibility for either power. Um, I wonder what what the ter- if the terms would be harsher after the sustained fighting on the part of Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know... Hitler famously, right, would would want to preserve his honor, the honor of Germany, and um, would be angrier with England at that point, I think. Mm -hmm. So I imagine the terms would be harsher if they sued for peace later. And another reason he probably wanted England to sue for peace is that it's it's the easiest and cheapest way to get them out of the war. I don't think Hitler really wanted to invade um, for for very pragmatic reasons. Um, It wouldn't have been it would have been a huge suck of resources capitulation is mu- is the much easier option. You know, just get them to agree to stay out of the war. Yeah, right. This is one of those uh, this is one of those cases where one divergent point leads to another. Nick has an interesting theory about this. Yeah, I mean, if if the Germans invade and and all seems lost, Churchill or whoever's leading probably is forced to flee the country, um like de Gaulle did uh, when France was invaded. You have this kind of scenario where Churchill is is leading the resistance from Canada, um, and he's and he's got the not only the resistance force in England but also uh, resources around the globe, you know, in the colonies. And I've got to believe that this is a very messy situation for Hitler in this scenario um, that would suck up a lot of resources uh, all over the place. 
I mean, at least if he can get England to come to the table, then it's, it's pretty clean, right? Weapons down, we'll leave you alone. And then, you know, the Germans can focus on their real mission, which is Russia. I think you're right. I think that that would have been ideal from Hitler's perspective. Um, on the other hand, to be devil's advocate, um, I think a, a victory in that sense would probably have uh, inspired Hitler to be even more megalomaniacal than he was already, to be even less likely to listen to his generals, um, even more convinced of his mission to you know further Germany's place in the world. Um, so that could still come back to hurt him later, even if it didn't happen that the way it did at Stalingrad, perhaps. But mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I think he would fall even in, more in love with his own myth, and that would uh, pro still prove to be his Achilles heel later on. Yeah. On the other hand, I, I think you're right. That would be the best way to ensure that he could focus 100%. Well, not 100%, because he's still occupying all these other nations that, that are proving in some cases, quite difficult to um, uh, keep under control. Um, but he could focus his attention largely in the East, which is what he really cared about. So the U.S. had been shipping billions of dollars of raw material and weapons to the Soviet Union. But the, the question becomes then, uh, does it continue to supply Russia um, after Britain's out, or does it take the U.S. Uh, out of the war completely? Possibly. Um, if, if Hitler was indeed smart enough to treat England a bit better than it, it treated any of the other um, uh, occupied nations or, or conquered nations. Um, I, yeah, I, I think, I think that's a real possibility. Um, Roosevelt, of course, was a uh, vocal, um, vocal in terms of supporting democracy uh, against fascism. But uh many Americans were very un unwilling, uninterested in entering a European war. Mm -hmm. So again, I, I think that's a good point. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. My opinion was that there was a lot of anti-communists in the United States, and uh, ultimately um, it would have taken the U.S. out of the supply chain. Yes, interesting. There is there are so many occasions when support from the U.S. could have been severed, especially in the early days of the war, you know, around this period, because I think Roosevelt is trying to figure out whether to back England or whether she's a lost cause. Um, you know, another great divergence point that we're not going to delve into today, but it's worth mentioning is Churchill making the really difficult decision to sink a large part of the French fleet while they were in port at El Cadiz in, in North Africa. I mean, that, like Dunkirk, is another huge turning point in the war. Um, these these were Britain's allies, you know, and uh, if Churchill doesn't make that decision to sink these battleships, I think Roosevelt says, I'm out. You know, I can't risk supporting England. And then in a couple of weeks, the supplies will be in, you know, German hands. I mean, you've got to remember these the ships in, in port in El Cadiz are not enemy ships. These are some of the best ships in the French Navy that could, with the surrender of France, fall into Germany's hands. Um, so in order to prove to Roosevelt that England had the balls to fight this war with Germany, Churchill gives the order that if they don't join um, the English fleet, then then they're going to be destroyed. Um, I mean, what a monumentally hard choice that is. I mean, you could argue that that decision alone um, secured America's support for the rest of the war. I think not long after that incident, of course, you know, Congress approves the, the Lend-Lease uh, policy, uh, but that's another show. 
There are for sure a lot of really interesting correspondences between Churchill and Roosevelt, though, at that time, where we almost hear threats from Churchill. If England fails, then you're not only going to be facing the French Navy in in German hands, but the British Navy also, um, which is a completely different story for the US. That's a really hard one to ignore. Now, you know, you have a threat on your eastern seaboard with a very imposing uh, navy. Um, Anyway, that's another episode. Let's get back to Hitler's ultimate desire to get England out of the war. I mean, is it really a reality uh, to think that Britain would uh, agree to terms at this point? I don't know. I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, theoretically, um, at least earlier on, Hitler had this idea of the British maritime empire coexisting with the German continental empire. But in practice, I just, I really don't see that happening. And I think especially by, by the time that say the British had um, destroyed part of the French fleet, for example, and made it clear that they were going to oppose German aggression in Europe. Um, I, I, I think that the peace terms would have been fairly punitive and would have limited the power of the British Navy and its role in the world, and certainly its economic power um, in Europe and elsewhere. So no is what you're saying, um, that that is something that Britain would not have agreed to, even under the threat of invasion, you know, they'd fight on. And also Britain at this point were aware of the atrocities, I think, going on in Europe under Hitler's rule. And that's got to play a part in any decision uh, to come to terms with Hitler. Uh, Another good example of, of Churchill's determination to fight to the end, even under the threat of occupation, was the secret resistance force that he organized Um, I think they were called the auxiliary units, but basically he put together a a network of resistance fighters that would be activated um, in the eventuality that that, uh, German forces would occupy uh, Britain. um, And they were were designed to harry the Germans uh, behind enemy lines. And these were civilians trained by the army to use use weapons. Well, that's a fascinating uh, piece of history right there. I mean, what would the life of these units been like? I'm sure it wouldn't have been uh, pretty. Um, and then there's the whole infamous uh, execution list. Well, the Gestapo had this whole list of influential people that were to be executed once Germany was in control of England. You know, this is really frightening stuff. Virginia Woolf, no coward, you know, having the Gestapo marching around, knocking on doors, pulling people out of their beds in the middle of the night, you know, and these people would never be seen again. You know, it's it's horrific when you look at the things that that happen in other occupied yeah. countries. Yeah. I mean, Jamie and I have been talking a lot about this and the idea that Britain uh, could be bullied into capitulation. Personally, I don't think so. Um, you know, just looking at the blitz and the threat of invasion that England actually did feel um, at the beginning of the war. I'm not convinced. I think that Churchill would have fought on regardless whether regardless what whatever the cost um he knew the sort of man he was dealing with in hitler and didn't see a way to do business with him i also i also think churchill was a fighter um the only possible way england comes to the table for me is if churchill dies um which based on his health record during the war is a complete possibility um not the healthiest chap um but he actually, I think he had a mild heart attack while traveling in the U.S. Uh, trying to drum up support. You know, so I, again, could have been a possible divergence point right there. Um, but I, that was later on in the war, I think. 
I believe Britain would have fought on, you know, just probably more in the style of the French resistance rather than the kind of street to street fighting that happened in Stalingrad. Um, but we digress back to our main point. <clears throat> I think Hitler's overall goal was to neutralize the United Kingdom as a base of op- future operations against Germany, whether that would come from the United Kingdom itself or or elsewhere. Um, whether that meant ideally reaching a peace agreement without launching a full-scale invasion or actually launching an invasion. Um, I think that was his, his goal. Obviously, as you pointed out, he wanted to focus on the East, on Russia, um, but he didn't want to be constantly worried about this gadfly with a powerful Navy sort of hindering him on the West. Right. So one way or another, he needed them out. That leads us quite neatly to our final pass at what might have been. Um, In this scenario, we look at what could have happened if Hitler was beaten back and the implication to Hitler's ultimate goal in Russia. So our thoughts in this scenario, the Germans would probably have gone for a broader attack along the southern coast and tried to stretch Britain's forces a little bit thinner. Britain would, of course, be expecting an attack at Dover, so maybe Germany tries to use a smaller, more diversionary attack there, you know, to draw forces away from a larger attack on Brighton or the docks at Southampton. That being said, the Dover Straits are the shortest crossing point, so England was taking a chance at committing the majority of its forces further west along the coast. But there was one big advantage the British had, and that is its intelligence setup. I think Britain had a far superior intelligence network um, than the Germans. And at this point in the war, 
Bletchley Park had had some success in breaking uh, the Germans' Enigma codes. So it stood to reason that they would have known where the main invasion force would be landing and when. Um, and maybe they could have focused their resources uh, and attention into a few specific locations where the German forces were expected to come ashore instead of stretching themselves really thin. And that's that's obviously a huge advantage. Yeah, from an English perspective in this counterfactual history, the combination of having better intel and a better navy, you know, really pays off. Yeah, what's interesting about this scenario is that if Hitler was foolish enough to try Sea Lion with all of its obvious flaws, you know, no landing craft, smaller navy, etc., then what effect does that have on his preparations for Operation Barbarossa? Right. Hitler gets a bloody nose, learns something. He wins the Battle of Britain, but Operation Sea Lion ultimately fails, you know, because of his lack of planning. Um, but in this scenario, does he learn a valuable lesson that he can now apply to Russia? I just... I think that's inc- that's very doubtful, in in my opinion. Um, also, because it's it it's not like he or it's not like the Wehrmacht would now be facing another England. They would be facing the Soviet Union, which was the low, you know, well, the second lowest life form um, in Hitler's universe. Uh, they had seen um, they had they had watched the Finnish Soviet war um, and and been totally unimpressed by um, the Red Army's. Uh, result, um, just barely, barely beating this, um, a much smaller force. So I think there are many reasons why they would continue to underestimate the Red Army, even if they had been turned back by England. And the Soviet Union, I think, should receive a lot of credit for after those first few months of massive losses, um, of regrouping very quickly, uh, you know, using that very successful strategy of basically dismantling everything, all the factories, um, moving them east, uh, and that proved and and burning everything essentially. That proved to be incredibly effective. Which brings us right back to the to the great man theory because you have Joseph Stalin, and Stalin, I think, is probably one of those characters like Churchill, like Hitler, that make a big difference in their fanaticism and their determination because Mm -hmm. that takes a certain type of dictatorial, crazy person to burn your own cities, force your own people to fight at gunpoint. I I don't think that would have happened in Britain per se. You know, there would have been a different kind of resistance because I... I actually, Jamie and I have discussed this quite a lot, but I actually don't think that, uh, I think it would have been a fight to the end in, in Britain. I think it would have been street to street fighting, but I, mm-hmm. but I, don't, uh, I don't think it would have been in the same way as Stalingrad or any of the sort of resistance craziness that you saw in, in Russia. Yeah. So, well, it, it's simply not as big too. I mean, you, yeah. don't, you don't have, you can't really run east in Great Britain, you know, you're you're on an island. I mean, there is a yeah. lot of land. In, it's not in very Soviet big. Union. It's not very big. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly you're in Edinburgh and you're like, wait, yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but also the ideological dimension wasn't, wouldn't have been, I imagine, as much of a factor in England versus um, in the Soviet Union, of course, there's the very racist ideology on the part of um, uh, the Nazis that was inculcated in the Wehrmacht soldiers. And then um, the the Red Army um, came to believe rightly that they there would be no mercy. I mean, they would be treated like vermin, which they were. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an even greater incentive for them to just fight 
to the, the last. That's always cited as one of Hitler's biggest mistakes was just the way that he treated some of these some of these liberated countries, you could the Ukraine, say, in the Ukraine. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. You know, that that where they were willing to kind of take up arms with them. And exactly. And the ideology that. got in the way of the war. Yeah. It, you know, in a, in a, in a yeah. lot of ways for, for Germany. And I think I think yeah. that's one of those one of those other sort of decisions that if if you don't have this crazy fanaticism in Hitler, maybe things but go then a there, differently. There would have been no Hitler without that crazy yeah. fanaticism. That's that's the counterfactual. I'm not I'm not willing to budge right. on. Right, right. Yeah, um, because then you probably don't have the will to invade these other countries no. in yeah. the first place. So. No. No. Well, and I, I also think that there's a mistake, I think, a, a mistaken assumption that every German soldier was a Nazi and right. had these and had these belief. Right. And there is evidence to suggest that there was a great, there was a large number of, of German uh, soldiers uh, that were not necessarily indoctrinated with the political beliefs and the racial mm-hmm. beliefs of the Nazi party. Mm-hmm. And that you know those those generals were making more rational decisions based on mm-hmm. tactics that that they believe would win the war versus mm-hmm. tactics that uh, would win the ide- ideological war. Mm-hmm. And theoretically, of course, that would have been more true on the on the Western Front. Um, I mean, it's after Barbarossa that uh, I sent or one historian, Omar Bartov. I don't know if you come across him, but he has a book called Hitler's Army, and he basically talks about Operation Barbarossa as the the campaign that made the Wehrmacht into Hitler's army. That's the campaign that turned German soldiers into Nazis. Um, but if they didn't have that experience of being kind of indoctrinated and and um, this anti-Slavic, anti-Jewish uh, mindset, um, yeah, that would have been a slightly different situation. I think on the Eastern Front, though, ideology is so tangled up in everything that happens. Yeah, because it's it's like once you start fighting, once someone's broken your nose or split your lip, you're like, you, the rationality goes out of the window, and then it becomes you killed my friend. Yeah, there are, there are so many human conflicts around the globe that start with a small battle, but once you start killing sons mm-hmm. and daughters, everything becomes different. The mm-hmm. views that you had before that may not have really been that influential to your ideology become now the reason why you're fighting Mm -hmm. so psychologically i think for any force once you start fighting you mentioned like once once britain had started fighting back that would have changed the characteristic of any kind of peace agreement between germany and england so i think that ideology did make it very difficult for um the german forces to do exactly what i what i mentioned of of actually collaborating with people who might have been willing early on um, and instead just creating more enemies for themselves. Which makes it very interesting that, you know, with, with it being so racially motivated, that the Axis powers included Japan. Right. But Japan, of, of course, had its own kind of idea of its racial superiority within Asia. Um, so, again, it's something that I don't think would have worked out long term. But in the short term, it allowed these these um, the racial the the top of the racial hierarchy in these different geographical regions to theoretically have total control over that region. Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle. Right. You know? I mean, mm-hmm. it deals with the whole scenario. I mean, it, actually, I think Amazon just uh, 
just bought a pilot um, from it. But the idea is that the Axis wins the war and the U.S. is divided between Germany and Japan. Germany has the East Coast, Japan has the West Coast. Right, right. Um, I was thinking the other day what it would have been like at one of those meetings between the Axis powers. I mean, what was a seat at that that table like? I mean, it's got to be crazy. You have Tojo at one end, you know, Hitler at the other. Mussolini, (laughs) fetal position, crying in the corner. Right, yeah. It makes me think of... um... I'm sure you guys have seen The Great Dictator, yes. Charlie Chaplin's mm-hmm. film, and, yeah. and the scene where uh, Mussolini and Hitler are sort of, or Chaplin are uh, kind of facing off and trying to show off to each other. Um, I, I guess in some ways it's no different to the kind of playground dynamics um, that you get when you're a kid, though. It's just now on a global scale with weapons. Yeah, just, you know, playing around with millions of lives at stake. <laughs> But seriously, what what was that dynamic like? Um, from what I know, not not very close. I mean, they really didn't uh, consult each other. I mean, Mussolini, of course, was a huge thorn in Hitler's side, and there was there were many um, instances when the Wehrmacht had to sort of swoop in and save the Italian army from complete embarrassment in the Mediterranean and North Africa. Um, and one can imagine if those German forces had been deployed elsewhere. Um, that that could have made a difference as well. Yeah, I think uh, the the Italian German relationship is is quite well documented. The one that I'm really interested in is is kind of Jap- and maybe this is another show, but is really kind of the relationship between the Japanese and the Germans, mm-hmm. uh, Tojo and Hitler their relationship, how much respect there was, mm-hmm. because obviously you know I think for, for me. The invasion of Manchuria could have could easily be cited as really the start of World War Two. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think they did. All of the Axis powers did see themselves as um, as the sort of rightful powers in their sphere, in a, in a sense, who had been kept down by someone else. So the Japanese felt that they had been um, prevented from from really becoming a great naval power by the British, by the Americans, um, and the Germans felt the same way. Um, so, and the Italians felt the same way as well, that they had not um, sort of gotten the chance to uh, get their place in the sun. Yeah. Um, so they could, they could bond over that at a sort of spiritual level, but to my knowledge, there just wasn't a lot of um, real military coordination. Um, I don't believe that the Germans, I should check on this, but I don't think that the Japanese communicated to Germany beforehand that they were going to bomb Pearl Harbor, actually. I don't know if you've seen differently, but I'm not aware of that. No, that's an interesting point. And I think I, I actually, we, we joked about it earlier, but I would love to do the Pacific Theatre as another, you know, uh, another partner show to this one, because I think there's yeah. a whole question about if, you know, if the Japanese had not bombed Pearl Harbor, yeah, would America have come into the war? Um, yeah, there, there are a lot of elements there that I think are really worth, yeah, uh, discuss worthy of discussion. Yeah, or if, um, I mean, if the Japanese had, and there were there were real reasons why they didn't do this, but if the Japanese had attacked the Soviet Union at the same time as Germany did. Um, but again, I think I think that the idea was that these Axis powers would have their own kind of sphere of influence, and they wouldn't um, interfere with with um, the geographic area of the other Axis powers, right. ideally. Right. 
Yeah, because I think that and the, and Russia, if I believe, had put most of its best troops further, uh, you know, further east to counter any kind of Japanese attack. Right, so. right. So the Japanese had made that calculation and also decided that they it made more sense for them to be a naval uh, a naval power in the Pacific. Um, but if they had coordinated an effort against the Soviet Union, it would have been an interesting, uh, interesting yeah. result. Okay, so we've drifted off course, and we knew we were going to do that. Um, so let's just go on with the flow here, Sonia. Um, is there a scenario that could have happened that would create a different outcome in World War II? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there, there are lots of moments that could have added up to a different outcome. Um, you know, maybe if Germany had reached a peaceful settlement with Britain um, and then avoided a two-front war, um, if... Uh, German, the, the Wehrmacht had um, sort of been been better at collaborating with uh, the populations of occupied countries rather than um, very basically treating them very punitively and often shipping them off to work as slaves in Germany, for example. If they had collaborated with those people who were open um, to something like fascism, um, that could have made a difference. Um, like I said, if if Japan perhaps had also attacked the Soviet Union, that could have made a difference. Um, if Operation Barbarossa hadn't been postponed. Um, so yeah, if if Hitler had, I mean, these are these are very, you know, un unlikely. Some of these are very unlikely, but perhaps if if Hitler had given his generals more leeway um, and more power, especially on the Eastern Front, um, to, to make their own decisions and um, strategies. I think you've summed it up very nicely, actually, in, in the, the challenges of something like this, because there are so many divergence points in uh, any kind of prolonged campaign it does get very distorted the further you go from your original point because there are so many factors that could then piggyback on top of the next. But I think something that you said really has stuck with me, the, the, the types of counterfactual history that you are not willing to entertain are ones that take the human experience or the human ideology out of it. Um, and I think that that a couple of the scenarios we just discussed there kind of do. Right. Right. Because it's like Hitler is ideologically driven. Yes. Racially I mean, he's, driven. Yeah, he's absolutely convinced of Aryan superiority. And he's also convinced that life is a struggle between races and between yeah. nations. And therefore that's enacted um, in, in Europe as they invade country after country. So many mistakes made throughout the war on both sides, you know, for both the Axis and the Allies. It's it's crazy stuff. A, a lot of historians think that that a, a prime advantage of the Allies was that they did learn from their mistakes early on, whereas the Germans had such such success early on that they kind of just kept going with what they had. But but it's sort of interesting to think about um, sort of these little moments: what was learned from them, or what wasn't learned, and how that could have been a turning point in some ways. Yeah, that's another very interesting, more counterintuitive point. Oh, what a tangled web we weave. 
we we haven't even touched upon technology and how that could have changed too. Yeah, you know I was saying I mean? about the atomic bomb, yeah. who gets control of that? Yeah, V two we'll rockets that for another you know, episode. Jets, okay. All that stuff. So, well, but there is an interesting point here uh, that that at some point I, I read an article that said that Hitler, with the ease of invading France, made a decision to stop its uh, advanced weapons program. And so, again, like, he turned it back on again when shit started to hit the fan. Right. But, like, we would have had ME-262s, potentially, the first jet yeah. fighters, you know, in World War II. We'd have had the V-2 rocket a lot sooner. All of these, I think we should definitely save that for another program because we, we will obviously have you back on. Yeah. Um, I, Germany gets the atomic bomb before the well, U.S. That changes everything. That changes everything. I mean, they, yeah. you look at you look at the strategic importance of Norway and the heavy water facility that they were trying to trying to get there. They were after the the yeah. A bomb too. Um, but more importantly, I think one of the things that you you hit upon, uh, Sonia, was that this idea of counterfactual history stimulates a an approach or a discussion that puts you in the in the seat or the shoes, if you like, of these leaders and the decisions they had to make. Because to your point, it's very easy when we look back at history to say, that's the way it happened. Here's mm -hmm. the dates. Here's exactly the times when those decisions were made. It's preordained. That's the way it happened. There's mm -hmm. only one way it could have ended up. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Versus a, a discussion about, well, if we want to stop this stuff happening in the future, we have to have an honest discussion about how things could have gone at all these different Mm -hmm. divergence points throughout history and I, I think that's kind of a, ultimately what we want to explore in this show is is the way that you know, we want to put people in the driver's seat of history right at those at those divergence points and at least have some kind of discussion about what if um yeah. I I think this has been really fun and interesting exercise I mean as you said it becomes a tangled web at a certain point with so many contingencies and you can't really control um but but I, I think it's important for us all to keep in mind that it's not obvious. Um, it wasn't obvious in 1941 and 1941 and 1942 that the Allies would win World War II. Yeah. Um, that was not evident. So this is already a successful uh, proof of our concept. It's yeah. always better for us to have more intelligent people on the show yes, exactly. than, than us. I know about more intelligent. We can really just rely on you to do most of the heavy lifting for the entire show, and we can just give you know, the odd, the odd humorous comment here. And right. There. It got me thinking about a lot of things and also about like teaching history, you know, and the ways that counterfactual history can be helpful in that. Um, yeah, but, but what the limits are as well, of course. <laughs> I really enjoy exploring these types of questions. It's like risk or, you know, there's a game Axis and allies. I love playing those games because they let you play out all these strategies. It's, um, it's a very yeah. interesting as a as a tool for kind of understanding these decisions from a yeah. from a military standpoint. Oh yeah, I love Texas and allies in college. You know, get drunk, invade the Philippines. It's awesome. Yeah, interesting. Another interesting kind of way to sort of learn or teach this kind yeah. of stuff, I guess, is having people make the decisions for themselves. Okay. Yeah. How would you do it? Let's, yeah. let's see how it pans out. Yeah, and what are all the repercussions after that one decision? Like you talked about that butterfly effect. Yeah, that's so. something that happens a lot when you if you ever play Risk or Axis and Allies or any of those kind of board games. Same yeah. as chess, you know, the same in chess. You yeah. know, you make a decision and it's not until three moves later that you see the effects or the repercussions of that decision. Right. And I think uh, 
it's a, it's a counterfactual history is kind of a game in that way. It's a game of logic. It's a game of trying to untangle all these different yeah. threads of yeah. human human yeah. decisions and motives and yeah. So yeah, awesome. No, it's been fun. Thank you. Well, big thanks to Sonia Ostro. Wow, what a colossal first episode. It's a lot of history to talk about. Yeah. Um, we hope you've enjoyed our nonsense. It takes a lot of time to do a show like this. Um, lots of research, reading. Um, so while we prepare show two, we've been doing this kind of halfway show where we read some of your comments and questions. So please send them my way. Yeah. That's if anyone actually listens to this show. Well, that's true. <laughs> and be nice if you can. But if you don't want to be nice, you don't have to be. Um, right. If you do have any comments or you do have any thoughts uh, we'd love uh, you to write in any theories of your own we've been scouring the internet and there are some really interesting theories that everybody has about world war ii specifically yeah so write us in tell us what you think uh to tease you a little our next show is going to be awesome it's about jfk and what if oswald's bullet or anyone's bullet missed oh see now you're teasing it see yeah. what if oswald or anyone's bullet so if you believe that Oswald was even the shooter, so many theories will attempt to do our own detective work and explore the world that wasn't if JFK had survived that fateful day in Dallas, 1963. It's going to be nuts. It will be nuts. So uh, we hope you've enjoyed uh, our ramble through the Battle of Britain. Uh, we've tried to cover most of the main points, but uh, I'm sure we've missed a ton of stuff. There's no way we can cover everything. Yeah. Um, Not even in uh, alternate history. In fact... <laughs> It's exponentially worse. <laughs> so let us know your theories on the world that wasn't at theworldthatwasn't.com. And uh, thanks for listening. See you later. Cheers. Mm -hmm.